Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome to Keywords in Play. I'm Marley Ann Butt, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Stephanie Harkin, who will be discussing her award-winning PhD thesis with us today. I'm an absolute fan of this thesis, and I can't recommend it enough to everyone I meet. Um, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for that very lovely introduction. Uh, happy to happy to be here and happy to talk about it. Well, it's so great to have you, and we'll be discussing a particular chapter. Um, from your PhD thesis. Is that right? Yes. I'm happy to give kind of a brief overview to contextualize it, but yeah, for the sake of time, I think it's best we just focus on one chapter. So I've, I've picked the one that um, talks about techno-femininity and hyper-femininity, which I think is very contextually kind of relevant. Everybody's talking about the Barbie movie at the moment and celebrating these uh, feminine aesthetics I'm seeing everywhere online. So this part of the thesis kind of looks into a history of that, that to better contextualise what we're seeing now. There's also been articles out on the Barbie game, but I think a lot of the themes and the concepts of techno-femininity is so useful and so interesting to the extent I just came from Bigra, so Big Digra. <laughs> and there's so many people where I was like, oh, you should read... Um, Dr. Harkin's award-winning PhD thesis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I know, I wish I talked about Barbie more in it, make it even more buzzy, but I definitely want to, in, in future research, um, dive into those more invisible Barbie games because there's so many of them. There's a dedicated Wikipedia page for every single Barbie video game ever made. And Barbie fashion designer is, is the one everybody talks about as being kind of the first one that made lots of money, but there's a lot of other really interesting ones out there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think what I love about uh, what you explore here and as well with the term techno-femininity is that, you know, obviously we've had the critiques of the pink and purple games, right, where um, pink and purple games such as, I guess, the Barbie games. Uh, what are some other examples just <laughs> that we're all on the same page? Uh, the Purple Moon games are probably another another sort of famous game that's talked about in a lot of conversations of, of gendered the girls' games movement in the 90s. They were games developed by Brenda Lowell, uh, Rocket's New School and the Secret Path series. And the, the Purple game term, for, for those listening who might not be aware, it's kind of like a related, uh, related but kind of dissimilar to the pink games, which were very heavily gendered with the stereotypes. The Purple Games were sort of going that little bit further to explore girlhood in a bit more of a, of a nuanced and thoughtful way, um, exploring sort of girls' inner interior lives and challenges um, by going further than those kind of marketed stereotypes, I suppose, which the Secret Paths and the Rocket series were seen to do. We have this resurgence of the no-shaming 
like pink and purple as colors and actually embracing pink and actually seeing an appreciation or value for femininity. Yeah, totally. And and the the term techno femininity in particular looks at those intersections of those aesthetics or those sort of previously gendered activities, things like dressing up dolls, it's not just the color pink, but the way that that intersects with with technology, with computers, with hardware, software, which has been so long been attributed as this masculine domain that's sort of, you know, cold and hard, associated with the military and science histories, which are career paths, even STEM now, career paths that women tend not to be associated with. Yeah, and that, as we know, traditionally not the case. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So tell us a bit more about what brought you to look at this. And I believe you've coined it. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's similar words that are out there, cyberfeminism, techno-feminism. But these terms are more looking at political resistance, sort of around the 1990s riot girl movements, looking at online web spaces that were uh, very overtly feminist spaces. But techno-femininity, it's a bit more of a broader umbrella term to look at sort of both the Barbie fashion designer, the marketing, or the, you know, the pinking of hardware and game consoles, uh, but also looking at it as, as gendered activities that can be resistant to. So it's uh, a term that's a bit more broad in its scope in that sense. And I use techno rather than cyber because it's not just internet. There's interesting things to look at with hardware as well. Another thing we see a lot of today, TikTok, YouTube videos of these cozy PC setups, skins for controllers, headphones that are that are very feminine and, and, and pink and floral, all of that beautiful aesthetic imagery. So techno femininity is the history of how that came to be and how that's being harnessed. This kind of hyperinflation of these Western gendered stereotypes, but something that not just girls, I think it's important to sort of preface that this femininity not be detached to womanhood and girlhood. I think it's very much taken on by queer cultures as well, but in a way that all of these people, including girls, are know that know that it has this critical history but it's something that they can also engage with and and draw pleasure from as well yeah totally so well put uh techno femininity isn't necessarily political can be and can be seen in forms of resistances but not necessarily so and i think that's still useful and something maybe that we often overlook in it in and of itself yeah, absolutely. Um, I have this beautiful quote from Anita Harris in the chapter, who's a, a girlhood scholar, and who writes, even whimsical and personal uses of the internet can be meaningful. And I really love that because it's even just embracing these hyper-feminine aesthetics and activities like writing in a journal, dressing up dolls, that can be political whether it's done in a, in a knowing, intentional way anyway because it is engaging with technology in a, in a different way. It's challenging. It's challenging those stereotypes. Yes, for sure. So what inspired you to look at this? Um, oh, gosh. Well, my whole thesis, I suppose, looks at girlhood games which actually came from a summer of just reading a lot of young adult novels and wanting to look at coming-of-age themes in games, which I thought there was definitely more scholarship to be added to that, particularly looking at girlhood, not just 
coming of age. And so I, I'm, you know, I'm doing research. I'm writing a lot of textual analysis on games in terms of the coming of age narrative arc. But towards the end of the, of the thesis in my research process, I wanted to look at how girls represent themselves through games. And, and I came across these two games that are kind of similar in theme. One is Nina Freeman's lostmemories.net and the other is Humming Warp Interactive's Secret Little Haven. And both of them entirely set on a desktop computer and both of them super hyper feminine, pink, sparkly graphics. And they're calling, uh, they were made sort of in the, in the late 2010s, but they're both set. One is set in 1998 or 1999 and the other is set in 2004. So they were calling this early period of the internet and they're both about these two teenage girls who were engaging with these online web pages, think GeoCities, Live Journal, Angel Fire, even even MySpace to an extent, if you're a little bit little bit younger, when people were making their own web pages. And this was a massively popular area for teenage girls. They were writing these blogs and they weren't social media profiles like they are now. These people weren't writing for their for their peers at school or they didn't have their family. Nobody they knew were reading these, not necessarily anyway. They were these sort of quasi private public realms of self expression. And so I've I've I'm looking at these games and, and as the player you can contribute to them as well so it's kind of a way that the player can also use games as a form of self-expression but then thematically these protagonists these teenage girls in each game are also presented as cultural producers as well and it recalls this history that I wanted to tell of hey game game culture we look at, at hacking and modding which are these very boyhood activities there were definitely girls who were doing it but they were marginal but instead of focusing on sort of the few anecdotes I could find of those marginal participants. Why don't we look at this whole new space altogether? Let's look at fan listings. Let's look at web pages dedicated to uh, to Club Penguin and Final Fantasy. Lots of fan fiction out there that was games adjacent as well. Dressing up dolls, star dolls, all of that was this sort of invisible, untapped area for game culture, these game adjacent activities, mostly rooted in fandom, that hadn't really been spoken about in an era where girls were otherwise presumed to not be active in game cultures. No, they were they were doing some really great creative stuff just elsewhere. Um, one of my interviewees once said, oh, wait a minute, does Neopets count? Right? And was, I had that moment reading this as well of like, oh, yeah, I mean, I was on Neopets. Um, I had a MySpace and that's where I learned how to code in HTML. <laughs> right? I had GeoCity websites and these were all very fandom-based and fandom-driven. And I also like this concept of the doll making and the avatars as well, right? Like avatars as a term is something that is quite researched in game mm. studies, but never quite in these kinds of avatars, the dolls. Yeah, totally. And, and and for what you said before, one of the reasons I love talking about this, whenever I've spoken about it at conferences, I always have people come up to me say, oh my goodness, I didn't, you know, didn't, hadn't thought about it that way. And I, this sort of sense of validation that I think really draws to, I guess, some of the shortcomings in game studies in general that has really let these fascinating spaces like Neopets fly under the radar. And yeah, there are a lot of myself included. Oh, I didn't play games until I had a PlayStation 2. No, of course, you were, if you're playing Club Penguin Neopets, which a lot of us were, then that's, yeah, definitely still a games, a, a gaming culture. So Girl Geek Academy is a Melbourne-based social enterprise dedicated to achieving gender equity in the technology industry. And one of the things they do for their game jams is have, they've got this cool little Venn diagram 
on their website uh, outlining three different roles which they've called hackers, hustlers and hipsters where hackers build, build code, build robots or build things um, with 3D printers even. Hipsters make everything pixel perfect through their love of design and hustlers uh, turn our dreams into reality by making sure the job gets done, including marketing of the product as well. And what I really love about this is the first time I think their game, uh, that I've seen a game jam model think beyond just the product, but actually the role in creating games as like a larger culture with various practices and activities. Yeah, I love that. And that, yeah, and I think that's important when thinking about doll making as a games adjacent activity. I, you know, I really wanted to chat about doll making but we're trying to articulate why it's relevant to games and you know dressing up dolls is play it always has been but there is this you know in the development process there's an over valuation of the programming and coding side of things rather than the art side of things which designing dolls was a little bit of both it was it was graphic design but there was also some coding involved but they had these they had these sort of flash design contests which were kind of like like the game jam uh, they had a trading card game that was a attached to them uh, that was it was inspired by by games like Magic the Gathering and the Yu-Gi-Oh card game uh, so it's you know, very much adjacent to play not just because it recalls Magic the Gathering I think we should really uh, really embrace that dressing up dolls is play I mean we do it in all of the games now every every first person shooter Apex Legend is, is a fashion game they just call it gear and skins <laughs> no and I, I love this right because it's like um my favorite part of a lot of the games I play will be games like um, like Red Dead Redemption 2. But my favorite part is just like, I guess, the, um, the homemaking stuff yeah. <laughs> or like Fallout 4. Um, and I spend a lot of time farming. <laughs> Same. Yeah, it's like the dollhouse play of those games. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look at The Sims. But I mean, that is kind of considered like a girl's game, but it was hugely successful. Uh, that Before that was released, it was originally called Dollhouse. This part of history that's, I guess, glossed over sometimes. Mm, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And um, we haven't specifically addressed this yet, but I do want to also discuss this being part of like DIY practices and a lineage of that you you briefly mentioned the the zine making um yeah practices yeah. as well uh with like the riot girl movement and then also I guess drawing on Angela McRobbie which we all should do more <laughs> 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 and I guess like bedroom cultures too actually I think I just highlighted in your conclusion I love I I think I highlighted it and then went this is awesome <laughs> I did that a lot so uh, what, let me find. Here we are. Constructing a history that relocates coding culture from boys' basements to girls' bedrooms. <laughs> well, that's what, I mean, for those unfamiliar, Robbie and Garba, they wrote this influential essay in the 70s, I believe, looking at these post-war British youth subcultures. And they were find, they found that most of the studies at the time were only only kind of privileging public spaces which then led people to conclude that a lot of these subcultural spaces like punk were sort of overrepresented by, by men and boys and girls were marginal. And McRobbie and Garby say, well, you know, that's not necessarily the case. We're just looking, putting too much emphasis on public space. So they relocate these subculture studies to the bedroom, the, the, the privacy of the bedroom. Not to say that girls weren't present in those public subcultures, but they were 
most of the time marginal in their studies, but they, they saw this untapped potential by looking at the bedroom. And, and that, that's precisely what I do in this chapter. If we only look at these hegemonic DIY gaming spaces, which, you know, we're looking at the, this era that the games were set, which is the era that I focus on, is mostly hacking and modding culture. This is before we had things like Unity and Unreal. The, the game design tools were much more limited. Uh, but these were mostly, mostly boyhood realms. Of course, there were girls, like, with the public spaces. But these online spaces instead, these, your, your life journal, GeoCities, Angel Fire. That's where uh, these spaces were massively much more popular with with girls, young girls as well, teenage girls. Dominated these spaces. They had the coding skills. They were using them to make to make games adjacent fandom spaces, uh, like like Final Fantasy fan listings. And yeah, and this was also an era then when most studies looking at girls' activities online, they were aware that girls were online, but they're not really tied to game culture. A lot of them do focus on, on the riot girl zines, which were when the internet came uh, and domestic computers came, girls had computers. Zines were able to be shared, distributed, created. These communities were established. And it's important to look at that, but I think there is a missing link here of, of some of the, the links between that culture, which was incredibly important, but with gaming culture as well. There were games that were also also shared, communities that were formed on, on, on fan listings and on these websites that weren't necessarily as overtly resistant as zines, but they were these alternative sites of, of pleasure and community and fandom that are worth looking at more closely. Mm. And, and absolutely. And you've also mentioned the Femicon Museum, which is kind of like an archive, if you wanted to speak more about that. Oh, everybody should check out the Femicon Museum. It's so good. It's created by uh, Rachel Simone Wheel. It's, you can see a lot of it online. It's a website that archives girls' games to take them seriously because a lot of them have sort of flown under the radar in games histories. You know, not necessarily commercially successful, but in a lot of histories, people are still fascinated by failure it's that still girls games get left out or you watch youtube videos of of men unboxing girls games and they're not they're not playing them or engaging with them in a serious way they're just making fun of them to make to make them appear like they're sort of pseudo feminists standing up for stereotypes but they're really just trashing these girly games and girls interests so the femicom museum it it amends that it uh it there's, there's blog posts, there's sort of a memory repository. It lists a bunch of games that most people have probably never heard of and has screenshots, stories, descriptions. On the homepage, it has no pink sucks vibes. So it's also embracing that, that hyper-femininity in a non-judgmental way, but in a celebratory way. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and it's so good. Everyone should check it out. <laughs> Um, I also love coming across the Nintendo sewing machine. I think it, I love it. It's so cool. Um, and, you know, it, it has the very kind of Apple aesthetics of the early 2000s as well. If you remember when all the Macs kind of had that particular shell on it. Yes. The, the laptop version of that, it was called the clamshell. Um, that was derogatorily called Barbie's toilet seat at the time. It was not necessarily even intentionally gendered, but it just became this sort of butt of the jokes is this girl's computer. But it's it's an example I use of techno-femininity. That's the computer that Al Woods has in Legally Blonde, and they use it to show her standing out from her classmates. There's this sea of black laptops 
And then Elle Woods from Legally Blunt in the middle with her clamshell. How good is that film, um, by the way? It stands up. So good. Stands up. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely does. I watched it recently. It absolutely yeah. does. Um, but yeah, the sewing machine was designed with that computer in mind. And it's, yeah, it's such, a, such an interesting machine. It, there was, I think, a crisis, supposedly, of, of girls in the 90s and not being as interested in sewing as they once used to be. I'm not sure how those statistics were gathered. Uh, but they teamed up with Game Boy. You could make, you could make Mario and these other Nintendo characters on the patterns and, yeah, just fantastic. I, they had a, they had one at PAX in Melbourne. I saw that. In a glass case. And I was so starstruck. I was taking selfies with it, which is really funny because I have a, I was talking about it with my students and one of the students said that their grandmother has one and uses it to show they, their grandmother had found it at a garage sale and still uses it today. I'm like, that same machine was in a glass box in the history section of a games convention and your grandma's using it to do their sewing patterns. It's amazing. <laughs> it was so amazing. I loved that story. It's brilliant. So I also wanted to discuss, but in your thesis, you do make a move from, I guess, girl studies to girlhood studies. Mm. Um, and also, I guess, like thinking about not necessarily calling them girl games, but girlhood games in particular, if you wanted to talk, talk about that a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's such sort of a rich amount of scholarship on girls' games. And I think we've still got a lot more to say about that. But girlhood games is something that's a bit more thematic and not necessarily tied to marketing strategies. A lot of, you know, when I was reading my reading all my YA, my young adult fiction, and wanting to find where that's taking place in games, a lot of it I noticed were in contemporary kind of blockbuster, the AAA games, you know, some key examples being like Horizon Zero Dawn, The Last of Us, even Life is Strange, um, not, not as AAA, but that's published by Square Enix, and I think that's a pretty big deal. So I was noticing a lot more of these not being segmented in this separate gendered category, but were just becoming normal stories as a part of games. We were sort of moving away from that archetypal hero's journey, like like what we see in The Legend of Zelda, for example. But this move towards more uh, the Bildungsroman coming-of-age themes, which I think Life is Strange is kind of the, a, a key example of that. It explores, it puts much more emphasis on these uh, social obstacles and identity exploration rather than epic quests and uh, and you know the return to home like the Odysseus narrative is sort of used as the archetypal hero's narrative but I was noticing yeah this shift towards the coming of age structure and a lot of those were from girls perspectives and I think that kind of intersects with your own research on the post-gamer turn I think a lot of these changes in in these larger key studios and key publishers has kind of been a response to critiques of, of, of video game themes being too being too hegemonic and rigid so that is one of the results but of course with um a lot of the game developer tools like unity unreal we're seeing a lot more perspectives as well so there's a lot of really neat girlhood games in the indie sector as well but i think it's it's worth it was worth asking why are we seeing these in blockbuster games too i think that's a really important move hmm. And while we focused on one chapter, did you want to expand a bit around how this chapter sits into your overall thesis and maybe some of the key takeaways from the PhD 
<laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is the very last chapter of my thesis. It kind of kind of points to what I plan on on doing next, what I've been working on since submitting. But the thesis it sort of weaves between different examples, different kinds of games, different development contexts as well. I talk about sort of semi-small games like Oxen Free, and I move to the uh, Life is Strange, and then The Last of Us. I've got a chapter at the beginning that talks about girls' games to sort of contextualize that difference from girls' games to girlhood games. Um, we write a little bit more about Purple Moon that we spoke about briefly before. But this last chapter fits in by sort of taking that shift from representations of girls by studios that I did a lot of the time I found were kind of more dominated by male creators. But the two games that I talk about in this last chapter were, were both made by women reflecting on sort of semi-autobiographical but mostly fictional, uh, thinking about their own girlhoods. They're personal, they're a little bit more intimate in that sense. One of them is free as well, so these aren't commercial games necessarily, but it's shifting between representation to self-representation from both the developer perspective. Uh, thematically, the two girls in this final chapter are cultural producers expressing themselves through their desktop and their online website and then the players too can also contribute and part of the actual gameplay is creating those websites or writing fan fiction or dressing up dolls so the creators uh, sorry the players can also play around with these forms of self-expression and creativity and cultural production in a, in a bit more of a limited way but it kind of points to a broader history where players were doing that already in that era. So this chapter kind of stands out from the rest because it shifts more to the players and creators but it does sort of continue along this this whole narrative of, of what, what does girlhood look like in games? How can a coming-of-age tale manifest in a playable system as opposed to, to literature or film? <laughs> So what's next, Dr. Harkin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, I would love to continue this history. I mean, I was very limited in space and time, uh, which is probably relatable to anybody working on a PhD thesis. So I would love to dive in a lot more deeper into this history. I'd love to produce an oral history, uh, talk to people. I didn't get the chance, sadly, in this thesis to interview anybody, but I would love to hear from the people who were part of these these Neopets web rings, uh, these Club Penguin blogs, and and put together a much an even richer oral history of, of these game cultures. And that, um, as you asked before, is your main takeaway is from this chapter in particular it's that girls were always there just because they're a lot more visible now when we look at, at things like streaming and um, and representation this thesis does look at history quite a bit and girls have always been playing whether studios realized it or gaming culture journalism uh, pointed it out yeah, they were always there amen to that <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for coming and uh speaking with us today on this um special episode it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie, Dr. Harkin. Um, so where can people read your work? We've got your PhD thesis, Girlhood Games, Gender Identity and Coming of Age in Video Games. Can they read that thesis? Yes, they absolutely can. It's available on the uh, research repository for Swinburne University of Technology. Uh, I have a link on my Twitter, which is SA underscore Harkin. If Twitter's still around by the time this posts, it's a bit of a turbulent space right now, isn't it? <laughs> um, I have an academia page as well, though, where I've got uh, links to publications as well as to the thesis. So cool. um, academia might be the easiest way. Yeah, awesome. I'm sure we'll be able to uh, add these links 
into some detail thing. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Keywords in Play. enjoyed this episode of keywords in play for more great ideas around games check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the digra archives at digra.org